This morning we're in 1 Peter, continuing through 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open there. Uh, Last week I said that I I wanted you to have the Bible in front of you for a couple of reasons. One, so that you can see that I'm actually reading from the Bible, uh, and so that you can see the text in front of you as well, and you can hopefully kind of track with how uh, myself or whoever else is speaking from the front kind of gets us through the text, and, and so that if we misstep, you can say, hey, Sean, I, I don't see how you got this. Can you help me understand? And that, that is a good thing, and I, I do welcome that. So we're in First Peter. It's about the second half or so. Uh, but before we do, I want to tell you a, a bit of a story. I want to remind you of someone that you, are probably, you may be familiar with. On June 4th, 1940. There was a a man of of average appearance. He rose to address the British House of Commons. He was an unlikely speaker. He had to overcome a lisp and a stutter as a child. Uh, Nothing from his early life kind of pointed that this was somebody special. He will be part of the, the British ruling class at some point. When he grew up, his teachers dubbed him as careless and forgetful. Uh, devoid of punctuality. I can identify with a few of those things myself. <laughs> Heard a few of those things. I can picture the report cards that got sent home. John talks too much and he's late. They stood a mere five foot six inches in height, but on this day, he stood up and with the, the full assurance of his authority to speak, and then the absolute conviction of the urgency of the moment, Winston Churchill took the floor. And he delivered his now historic address, We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches, a speech that both both inspired and catalyzed and challenged the British people to redouble their, their war efforts. Maybe you're familiar with it. He said this, And we shall go on to the end, and we shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills, and we shall never surrender until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. This world leader delivered this, probably one of the best-known speeches of the 20th century, was kind of very little to look at in his earlier years. And so it's, it's kind of similar to Peter, wasn't it? Peter, an, an ordinary, uneducated fisherman from a backwoods area in Israel. But all of a sudden, he, he meets Jesus. And he spends some time with Jesus. And Jesus invests in him. And he watches Jesus' life and sees his death and resurrection and, and then has the Spirit come on him. And now... He steps into so many places and speaks with authority and with courage and with boldness that, that, that threw people off. And that's who's writing this letter to us, this Peter. Now, in the first 12 verses that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, Peter unpacks a picture for us of the glorious inheritance that we have and that awaits for us who are God's chosen people, who are the 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 chosen exiles of the church. And he reminds the churches, this letter was written to circulate around the churches in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor Minor back then. And he reminds them that this inheritance is, is is a gift for them that is 
kept secure by the finished work of Jesus. This Jesus who acted on the will of the Father, this was planned, and who acted through the power of the Spirit. And even though these churches and the people in the churches, they have trials and struggles and even sufferings in front of them, their inheritance, their assurance is safe and secure and it's promised. And those first 12 verses are just so rich and so deep that we started the service asking how should we pray. It would not be a bad idea to open up to 1 Peter and just sit and soak in those verses 3 to 12. Just understand and let them speak to you and pray that God would remind us of how we, we, we rest in Him and we resist, uh, we persevere through temptations and we are, we are we're happy and, and, and excited to be in the time and space we're in because we have the Holy Spirit. But the letter carries on. It doesn't stop there. Peter has more to say than just remind them of who they are, as important as that is. Sometimes I think we get stuck, though, at the end of verse 12. We hear this great message, this reminder that, that Jesus has come to rescue us, that we have an inheritance, that, that heaven is on the way, and we just stop. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go home. And we just hang on for dear life for when Jesus calls us home, calls us into that inheritance. For some of us, maybe we sort of grasp that Jesus has done something and it's great, and we're looking forward to heaven, but we don't really let Jesus come into our nows. We don't let him work in our lives in this moment. We know he did a work back then, and it's for that moment. We just sort of coast through this time. However, since Jesus has done the work in us and for us, we actually need to respond to that work accordingly. Peter says here, listen, guys, God gave you a new life. So now it's time to live in that life. It's time to live in a new way. And so what does that life look like? Well, Peter, in this next section, is going to challenge us with four things and tell us how to make that new life happen, how to live that. And for everyone who just heard me say, I'm going to give you four more things to add on your to-do list, bear with me. Stick with me. I promise it's going to be okay. Let's look at what Peter says. Verse 13. He starts with one of my favorite words in the Bible. You know it. Therefore. And you know good and well that any time I come across a therefore in the Bible, I stop and I say, what is the question we need to ask when we see this word? And that question is, what's the therefore, therefore? Not bad, not bad. Okay. I don't, I don't think I'm overstating it too much to say that, that this is the most important word in the passage. Therefore, And so we do have to ask, why is it here? Why is it important? Why are we taking this one word at a time? Because it means that, that everything that's about to come, I just told you we're going to talk about four things Peter, Peter wants you to do, right? All of that comes because of what we've already heard. In light of our inheritance, this is what it looks like. All the commands that we get, Really, here and I think everywhere in Scripture, this is not unique to Peter's writing right here, they're always grounded in what God has already done. God's commands for us are always rooted in His grace that He's already poured out. His commands 
come after what he's done. The, the big example is the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus, right? We, we, we know that when we're familiar with that passage, sometimes when we hear about who God is and what's his law, we flip to Exodus 20 and we start reading there and we hear, no other gods before me, don't make any idols. And we go through and it's like, this is a lot of stuff. But when we jump in there, we miss the whole story of the Exodus and how before God gave the people the commandments, he said, hey, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. There's no way you guys could have got yourself out of Egypt. I brought you through the the sea. I brought you through the desert. I did this and this and this and this because I love you and you're my people and I love you. Therefore, here's how you rightly respond. And so I think therefore is the most important word because if we get this wrong, if we start with the commands and forget about what God has done, we're no longer following the Bible, we're no longer in Christianity. We're doing stuff to try to get from God, and that's not biblical. If we start to think about this list that Peter's about to give us as things that we need to have figured out, we need to be holy so that God will love me, that's not here. That's not in the Bible. That's not a thing in Christianity. So we have to get this right. So Peter starts with, therefore, because of all that God has already done, in light of Jesus' work for you, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the first thing we have to do? The first thing he tells us to do is to hope fully. All the things that Jesus has done who Jesus is can take the weight of all your hope. He's, he's saying, Peter's saying, don't just add Jesus into the list of things that you put your hope in. Some of us hope in our retirement accounts. Some of us put our hope in a raise coming in the fall. Our hope in the extra square footage of the house. All these, all these things around us. My, my hope, I'm putting my trust and my, my, uh, my, my longing for a, a better life in all of these things. And Peter's saying, no, no, forget all those things. Hope fully in Jesus. Don't just sprinkle a little Jesus on top, but fully in Jesus. And the reason he needs to tell us this is because hope leaks. I can say some days, yes, I hope fully in Jesus. He's, he's everything. All I have is worth nothing compared to him. But then I step into Monday. And all of a sudden, the kids are getting ready for school and uh, needed to get groceries. And all the things, it's like, okay, actually, I'm putting some hope in this thing and that thing and that thing too. It leaks. We need to be reminded that Jesus can take the full weight of every single one of our cares and worries and anxieties and questions and doubts and sufferings, all the things, hope fully in Jesus. And Peter starts with our heads here, doesn't he? He says, get your minds ready for action. We cannot just passively live either. Get your minds ready for action. Now, so often when I try to be more like Jesus or be holy, which is, spoiler alert, the next thing Peter's going to tell us to do, I start with this. Okay, I want to be like Jesus. Jesus did this thing. Jesus went away, got up early and went away to pray. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get up early and I'm going to pray. Okay, great. 
Jesus also had some strong things to say about don't do this. So, okay, uh, I shouldn't do this. I'm going to cut this out of my life. I'm going to stop this. Okay? I will start these things. I will stop those things. Is that what we're talking about here? Behavior changes is a, is a good thing, but it's not enough. It's me, first, it's me trying to change. But what Peter's saying is, you know, that it's, it's good that you want to change your behaviors, and that behavior changes, it's an important part, but the problem starts farther back than that. It actually starts in your minds. It's not just what you do, it's how you think that we need to bring in alignment with Jesus. Do you know how uh, temptation works? Some thing or some sin presents itself to you, something that will actually get in the way between me and God or you and God shows itself and presents itself to you as a reasonable choice or a good choice or a delicious choice. And in that moment, if we allow our thoughts to camp out on that thing, that's where the problems start to begin for us. Being tempted is not a sin. It's what we do with the temptations, right? James 1.15, James writes, After the desire has conceived, once we've allowed our minds to sit on that thing, dwell on that thing, that we know will get in the way of us and God, that God has, has told us is not good for us. After the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I was taking a, a, a preaching class a couple of weeks ago. And, and kind of somehow the, the, the prof did a, a fantastic job of kind of teaching us how to open up the scriptures and, and how to, 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 to teach. But he also like did exactly what he was telling us through the classes in some ways. And I, I don't remember how he got here in one class, but one class he looked at us all on Zoom because we were scattered across the country. And he said, do you know why you sin? Well, we're all pastors. We could probably come up with the list, right? You know, I'm following and flush the elephant. He's like, no, 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 no. That's... Bring it down. The reason you sin, he says, is because you love that thing in that moment more than God. Now, I've been in some quiet Zoom chats, but you could hear a pin drop across the country because he was exactly right. In that moment, my love for God is less than my love for that thing because we're acting out our heart's desires in that moment, right? We, we think that, that that thing is going to be better for us, and so we go after it. It starts with our minds, not with our actions and with our behaviors. That's why elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul doesn't say to the Romans, be transformed by a renewing of your behaviors, but instead be transformed by what? A renewing of your minds, of your minds, so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. So Peter calls us to be prepared for action, to set our minds on the things of Christ. And he also says that we're to be sober-minded, to think clearly about these things. We, we should be a clear-thinking people. The followers of Jesus, we need to think about the world and what God calls us to and how to interact with the world. And we need to take the words of Jesus seriously. Now, how do we do this? We have to crave God's word. We have to be in the text. Peter continues, verse 14, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance before you knew Jesus, before you met Jesus. But as one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So the second outworking of our faith, 
because of all that Jesus has done for us, we are to be holy. That one's easy, right? We don't need to talk about that. We can just move on. Man, Peter builds on his call to set our full hope on Jesus and then says, be holy. Be set apart in all that you do. If there were, happened to be any Jewish converts in the room when this letter was read, they likely would have caught on that this passage and this kind of quote here was actually a, a common command in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 4, uh, four times, or in the book of Leviticus, four times this is given, be holy as I am holy, be holy as I am holy, be holy as I am holy. And Jesus actually echoed this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 too, where he says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is there a harder command in the Bible than this? I'm not so sure. But to be holy, is, again, is to be set apart. It's to live as aliens and strangers and exiles. And Peter will call us more into that in chapter 2 as we get there in the coming weeks. And really, what, what would be more strange and what would seem more alien than living a life that is totally devoted to and obedient to God? It will look weird then and now. And obedience really is the key here. And it's a key marker of our genuine faith as well. Again, we don't obey so that we get God, but we obey because of what has our, God has already done for us. And so we don't live in the world anymore in our former ignorance, but instead, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in us and through us and, and, and deal with some things, we start to think and feel and act and speak more like Jesus, which is becoming us becoming more holy. And so just as Jesus was and is holy, we strive to be holy as well, not to earn anything from him, but as evidence of our salvation. Uh, elsewhere in our New Testament, John kind of says the same thing in 1 John chapter 5, where he says, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, to obey him. And he says his commands are not a burden. So we, we show God that we love him by obeying him by submitting to his rule and reign over our life. And it's not a burden. It's not easy. But as we, we fit under the, under the yoke of his teaching, it, it fits right. Even though God's commands might be difficult and they might cost us things and they will make us look like strangers and aliens in our lands, if we love God, when we, then we know that those commands are boundaries and guardrails set up for our good. God loves us, and he tells us, because I love you, you need to live this way. Like a good parent would tell their child, right? We set these things up for our good, and we obey. Well, how do we know God's commands, which we need to follow and obey to be holy? Well, we've got to soak in his word. And so Peter says we want to, hopefully, we want to be holy. And he continues and says you need to fear rightly. Verse 17 is, If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each other's work, you are to conduct yourselves with, uh, in reverence or with fear during your time living as strangers. For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, was revealed in these last times for you. And through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, 
so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, there are a lot of things in this world that we can be afraid of. And if you need any, if you're wondering, turn on the news, open a newspaper, log on to any social media channel, and there will be a gluttony of things you can decide, this is terrifying, I'm going to be afraid of this. But Peter says that believers are to fear God, that, that, our, that our lives should be characterized by a reverence towards our Father and our Judge. Now, the idea of fearing God has kind of fallen out of favor a little bit in churches recently, a little bit. We try to soften that language a bit. It's like, oh, what he really means is just honor God, you know, respect God, remember he's God and you're not, all of which is good and true. But, but when we use, start to use language like that, you know what it does? It kind of takes God from his rightful place and sort of lowers him down a little bit. Right? I, I honor my parents. I respect my parents. I, I, I honor and respect lots of people. When I use those same words for God, it, it kind of brings him down, which we don't want to do. Peter reminds us that God is a personal and loving father, yes and amen. But he is also an impartial judge of our hearts. And that should elicit a, a, a reverent fear or an awe and a respect for God. As one writer says, it matters that we revere him because if we, uh, those, for, excuse me, it matters that we revere him for those who forget the transcendence of God will soon forget his commands. Right? If, if we take God from his rightful place and start to think, well, maybe he's just like a good parent. Maybe he's just like, he's got some good ideas. Maybe like that, I respect him, but I also respect a principal, a politician, all these other things. All of a sudden, it's like, well, why am I obeying this? Those who forget the transcendence of God will soon forget his commands. And the Old Testament bears a repeated witness to this effect. But those who hold in tension the truths of loving Father and just judge will worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, as the psalmist writes. Peter reminds us in verse 18 that we've been ransomed from our earlier ways of thinking, that, this, the, that us being brought into the family has cost something, and not silver or gold, as precious as that is, but it fades. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now, because of the new inheritance we have in Jesus, we can conduct ourselves as obedient children of our true Father. And again, this is foreknown by the Father. This is part of his plan. Peter keeps hitting that, doesn't he? This is, this is part of the plan. This goes way beyond us. And so how do, we, how do we grow in our awe and right fearing of God? Maybe you're starting to catch on a bit of a trend that I ask at the each end of each of these things. We have to learn more about who he is and just how awesome he is. Man, how many Psalms speak of just the glory of God? We have a, this vision in the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah entering the throne room and just like words just start to run out as he pictures the splendor of God in his throne room, right? We have to learn about who he is from his word. We've got to be in the word again. And so we hopefully, we be holy, we fear rightly. And the fourth thing he tells us to do is to love earnestly. Verse 22, since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, so you show a sincerely brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, and through the living and enduring word of God, because 
All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. The fourth thing Peter tells us to do in light of our inheritance is that we are to love one another earnestly. And this starts in the church. This is a love that we actively choose. And just like the other things were hard, some days this is hard too. Sometimes people are hard. Sometimes I want to be alone. I don't want to love anybody earnestly. That sounds worse than it is, but like I, I, this is a hard thing sometimes, right? But it's a love that we choose, and it's, it's a deep love. It's a fervent love, and this is how God loves us. And so the command isn't hard in the fact that we have no example, no understanding of this, but Peter is saying, remember how much God loved you. Therefore, give that love to those around you as well. Sometimes I struggle with understanding how much God loves me. Um, we were up at a, in Edmonton uh, this weekend, a uh, course like a, a, a prayer and kind of a healing and a ministry course we were in and, and had some time. Uh, where one of the teachers just kind of kind of prayed with each one of us and, and came to my turn. His name was Sean, too, which is really, really a bad thing for the whole course. And Pastor Sean's going to pre- teach on this. I was like, I'm going to what? No, it was another Sean. Thank Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Um, but one of the things that he, he prayed for me is that I would just understand the love of God from my head to my toes. And that, that just the, the un ending, unfathomable, uh, like, love of God would just seep and soak into every fiber of my being. Sometimes I think God just tolerates me. He loves me because he has to, because he made me. I feel like God's just saying, Sean, we're we're still wrestling with this. Why are we still wrestling with this? Sean, we haven't overcome this. Why? Like, I'll give you more grace, but gosh, let's get through this. No, God loves us with this this unending love, this unearned, undeserved love, love that just, it's fervent, it's earnest, it's deep. He tells us to love others the same way. And this isn't easy. It wasn't easy for them. It's not easy for us. Often when we're going through hard things, the, the people who are closest to us take the brunt of our emotions, don't they? trying to slowly learn this as parents, too. Sometimes when our kids have, have hard days at school and they get home, who gets it? I get it. Right? And, and we've been told, that, you, know, you know what? The reason that your, your kids feel like they can kind of blow up emotionally when they get home is because they're safe there. They feel safe. They know that you love them. And they've been trying to be good for all day because the teacher says do this and the bus driver says do this and the lunch lady says do this and the supervisor says this and the music teacher tells them to do this and they just don't want to do any of it and so they get home and blah, welcome home. The people closest to us often get our hurt and they, they, get, our, they get our big emotions. And that's, that's the church sometimes, right? It's a lot easier. I'm going to use you again, Steve. It's a lot easier for me to be upset at Steve about the music that he chose and how he led and that there's distortion on the guitar and why are we not playing acoustic and all the things, which I would never do because he does a great job and thank you for leading us again. But that's a lot easier than for me to go into the world and fight with some really big things. I feel a little bit safer with Steve. 
And so Peter knows that when things get tough on these new churches and when things get tough in our church, because they will, and they do, we'll be tempted to start bickering amongst ourselves. He says, no, that's not it. That's not how you relate to one another. Unity and love should be the hallmark of our churches. I appreciate how uh, Jen Wilkin describes this passage and, and writes, she says, the people of God should earnestly seek unity and love for one another. After all, they've been born again through that which is imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. It's a living word in that it's alive with the very breath of God. So it has brought us into new life, causing us to be born again. And it's an abiding word. It's not passing away like the grass or the flowers, but it will remain forever. And so this word of God sustains us through this life and trains us in holiness and tethers us in hope. And this word is the gospel that has saved us and continues to save us. She says, faith in Christ delivered us from the penalty of sin and it is delivering us from the power of sin as it conforms us to the image of Christ. It gives life and it sustains us. And Peter drives home this point in this passage by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 that, that the grass, fither, uh, grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And he's pointing the people back to Isaiah. And if, if they were familiar with the prophet's word, they would, they would know this. If they weren't, they could figure it out. But he quotes from a time in the history of God's people where they were in exile. And it's as if he's saying, listen, you guys, this is not the first time God's people have felt like they're exiles and outsiders and strangers and aliens. It's not the first time. And guess what? It's not going to be the last either. 2022, church, this is for you too. But it's also not the last time that the God of all comfort will show up and be strong and still be mighty to save. And he chooses, Peter does this Old Testament prophecy that points us to Jesus, the good shepherd who is leading his flock. It's a good word for us still today. We live in a world that is increasingly hostile to our beliefs, and, and we can forget the promise and comfort of our future inheritance and just get bogged down worrying about the mess of right now, can't we? And Peter says, no, no, keep your eyes on the things that have eternal significance. The grass withers, the flower fades. We've got amazing colors out the windows right now. One windstorm and it's not, it's done, right? We all know that. We're praying for no wind for at least a couple of weeks, right? I am anyways, I got to get out there. All the leaves are going to be gone, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. So he wants us to, to daily look for things of eternal significance and look for ways to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, just like God has loved us. And so we hope fully, we be holy, we fear rightly, we love earnestly. And then after that, Peter kind of gives us uh, something of a concluding summary. And this, this section of text that we're going through, it's like a preacher's favorite text because there's another therefore. Yes, therefore, because you are trying to hope fully and be holy and fear rightly and love earnestly, therefore, here's how it looks like. Rid yourself of all malice, of all evil behavior, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy. Boy, that gets hard sometimes around here, doesn't it? And all slander. Get rid of those things. But like newborn infants instead, desire the pure milk of the word. There's a reason that after every one of those four points, I said, how do we do this? We go to the word because that's what Peter says. And that's the only way we can do it. We desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up 
and grow into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good and the Lord is good. He's saying, church, since God has given you new life, live in that new life. And it looks like putting your full hope on Jesus, all of it on Jesus. It looks like letting the Holy Spirit come into your life and grow you into looking more like Jesus. It's remembering that God is our good Father, yes, of course, but also having a reverent fear of just how great and how mighty and how other and how just He is. And it looks like loving others fully, fervently, and deeply. And if you're going to do that, you've got to get rid of some things and you've got to chase after one thing. He tells us to get rid of what is sinful, to put away or put aside. That language is so like, cleaned up in our English. What he's actually saying is that you put things aside like you would a soiled garment. I don't know if you've been around little kids recently, especially like baby kids. We got to visit in Edmonton. We got to visit uh, really quickly my sister. Uh, she's got a young little daughter, and we were on our way to our course, but we stopped on the way, and I'm like, do you want to hold the baby? Yes, of course you want to squeeze the baby. And she's going to squeeze and pinch her cheeks and little thighs and all, all the things, right? Love it. You're like, what if she barfs on me? Like, we got to be careful about this, right? Like, it's like, i got places to go. The, the, what he's talking about here is like this. Or if you're holding the baby, and sometimes babies blow out diapers, right? Diapers sometimes, they just can't do what they're supposed to do. But you do not want to leave that kid in those clothes, and you do not, do not want those clothes on you any longer, right? It's getting out of those barfed-on, soiled clothes and getting rid of them as far as you can because they're disgusting. That's what Peter's saying here. Get rid of these filthy rags of evil behavior and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Get out of those clothes. He's not just saying, listen, guys, I think you should stop doing these things. He's like, run from those things. Throw them away. They're disgusting and unclean. But instead, be like the newborns. This, in chapter 1, twice he talked about us having new life, right? So he's kind of sticking with that image. Be like that newborn that just craves milk, craves spiritual milk, so that we'll grow up and we'll mature. And where do we find that? That, that spiritual milk, it's, it's God's Word. That's where we find all of this. It's not about us working hard to seek Him out. God, it's here. The way we do any of these things is by craving more and more of God through his word. We need his word to survive. We need his word to grow in Christ. We need his word to sustain us. Let me wrap up with this. By God's grace, we have been given a new life, and so we live in a new way. We long to hope fully, be holy, fear rightly and love earnestly. We want to put aside all the things that get in the way of our relationship with God. All of, we listed them, the desires, the hypocrisy, the slander, the evil, all the things. We want to crave more and more of God's word. And this is completely countercultural, but it's completely natural for God's children. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning this opportunity that we have to worship you, and this opportunity that we have to hear from you. 
If there's anything that, that I've spoken this morning that's not of you, I, I pray that you'd remove those things from our minds. And if there is anything this morning that you want just to, to highlight, I pray that you'd highlight those things in our mind. Jesus, thank you that, that, um, that you came and you showed us how to perfectly relate to God. That you were perfectly obedient. You hoped fully. You were holy. You feared rightly and you loved earnestly. Thank you that you went to the cross to take the punishment for my sin, for our sin. Thank you that you didn't just die on the cross, but you were raised again on the third day, conquering our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death, and making a way for us to come back into the family as we put our hope in you, our trust in you. And thank you that because of your work, we have an inheritance that is kept pure, undefiled, secure, waiting for us. I pray that you would help us to live these things out today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.